the spiritual warfare thing has been very heavy on my soul um, because we've lost our commission in that area. We've lost the focus on that part of our commission. When the church was originally established, it was established after a great victory was won. And our entire mission as the body of Christ is to secure Christ's victory over the devil in every area. And we've had 2,000 years to do that, and we have not made enough progress. And if you look back through history, you will see moments in time where the church took over entire nations. Take Rome, for instance. Rome was the most hedonistic, devil-worshipping, demonic nation on the planet. And in a matter of decades, Christianity had taken it over and established Catholicism with, with its flaws. Arguably, it has some flaws, admittedly, I should say. But most of us in this room, I'll say all of us in this room, are Christians because of the Catholic conversion of the Roman Empire. Because that's where Christianity began. And the, in, the influence of the most powerful nation on the planet being converted to Christianity spread Christianity to every known corner of the world. And over time, re religion did a number on it. But you couldn't stop it. Now imagine what the world would look like without that moment in history. Imagine if the Emperor Constantine had not converted or had not legalized Christianity. There was a time when Christianity was illegal and you were arrested and murdered. You were, you were prosecuted for practicing Christianity. In a nation where you could practice any other religion, you could worship anything, any way you wanted, except Christ. And for that entire nation to be converted. We, we make a lot of statements about our government and things like that. But we don't know what ancient Rome was like. We don't know that struggle to, where you couldn't legally congregate as Christians. But because the church was doing its job in the spirit realm as it did its job in the natural, the entire nation converted and then it changed the world. And the last 1,700 years of human history has been affected by that moment. To this day, every other denomination of Christianity that you're familiar with, from Methodist to Catholic to Baptist to Presbyterian, all of that began then. Pentecostal, Church of God, Church of God in Christ. Not really sure what the difference is. I guess one of them's in Christ and one of them's not. Uh, to this day, I don't know what the difference is between Church of God and Church of God in Christ. I really need to study that more. <laughs> After a while, there's just slight differences with, with a name change. Usually it's money related. But uh, I know a guy who's very well versed in those things. And by the time he gets finished explaining it, you're just more confused. Um, but our focus on spiritual warfare has been lost as a body, especially in the West, especially in the United States, especially in this hemisphere of the world. We've become a community-based organization. We've become a cultural, influ cultural influencer. We're trying to be influential without power. We've given up our primary position 
Jesus went into hell, defeated the head of the kingdom of darkness, took his power, took all his power, and then came back, gave us his power, and then said, okay, in this power, take over the planet. And he's given us a couple of millennia to do that. We've had great highs and great lows. It is my humble opinion this evening that we are at the cusp of a new awakening, but we're still in a low. But this low is different because this low isn't the same. This low isn't the product of natural warfare. This low is the product of complacency. When you've been a Christian nation for as long as we've been, you get used to Christianity in, its, in practice until the power is lost. And usually, we don't start making noise until they go too far. But where were we when they were getting to too far? We were comfortable because we could still worship like we wanted. And we could still make money like we wanted. And we could still say things like we wanted. Until one day they said, you can't say that anymore. Until one day they said, oh, well, you got to close your door because of corona. And we will go to jail if you preach during corona. And we starting to wake up to the realization that it can be taken from us if we don't fight for it. But the fight is not against flesh and blood. I'm going to go through a few scriptures, and then we're going to get a little bit deeper into this. Let's start. Let me get my, my pages all flipped up on me. Go to Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. We know this one. It'll take us on a little journey this evening. You know, I, uh, I've been listening to the voice of God about where, how do we get it back? How do we get back to where we're supposed to be? And he showed me some things. That's 20, 20, Matthew 28, 18. Jesus has returned. He's resurrected from the dead. He's appeared to his disciples. And he gives them this proclamation. He says, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. All power. So every form of power known has been given unto Christ in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. All right. So that was the, we call that the Great Commission. Go to Mark chapter 16, verse 15. Most of these excerpts come right after Christ's resurrection. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. And he said unto them, Jesus has resurrected, and he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So now he's not just talking about preaching to people. He's talking about preaching to all of creation. Every created thing must be made aware of this gospel. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. But he that believeth not shall be damned or condemned. And these signs shall follow them, verse 17, that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. He didn't say they might recover. He didn't say they may recover. He said they shall recover. But he also said they shall lay hands on the sick. So a sign of believing is laying hands on the sick. A sign of believing is casting out devils. A sign of believing 
Jesus said, these signs will follow them that believe. Now, everybody calls themselves a believer. They should have some signs following. When they lay their hands on the sick, the sick should recover. When they encounter a devil, they should cast it out. Jesus said, in my name. He said, in my name, they shall. There's no wiggle room in that. Okay, we'll come back. Laying the foundation. Go to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. One of my favorite moments in the Bible. One of the most important moments in the Bible. John, chapter 20, verse 22. Now, this is John's uh, teaching on what happened in that moment. Go back to 21. The disciples are gathered together, and Jesus appears to them after his resurrection. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so I send you. He says, As my Father has sent me, I send you. That's not metaphorical. The way Jesus was sent, we are now sent. It's not a metaphor. He said the same way that I was sent to the world, you are now sent to the world. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And he said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. This is when the disciples become born again. They have not been baptized in the Holy Ghost at this point. They were sinners up until this moment. They were still dead in their sin. And then... He breathed on them. The first time this happened was all the way back in Genesis when the father breathed into the man and man became a living soul. This is the second time this happens because Jesus said, I only do what I've seen my father do. So Jesus does the exact same thing that his father did. And man, these men became living souls. They were dead, and now they're alive because he breathed on them. And we're going to talk about the breath of God a little bit, if time permits. But we've got to understand what the breath of God is in the Bible. But that's a very important moment. This is the first time Jesus was the first man to be born from the dead. This is the first time someone other than Jesus experiences this. And it's his disciples. Now go, I'm trying to get all the preliminaries out the way so we can go into detail. Now go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. This is the disciples gathered together in the upper room. And being assembled together with them, Jesus commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem. But wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard of me. This is ta he's talking about the Holy Ghost is going to come. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days from now. So he's breathed on them, and they are now living souls. They are now living for the first time. They've been dead their whole life. Now they're alive. The way when we became born again, he breathed on us. 
It's a spiritual process. When we became born again, we went from death to life. And now we are alive in this flesh. We were not alive in this flesh before. We were dead in our sins, the Bible says. And then he breathed on us, and we became living souls. The way Adam became a living soul when God breathed on him, the way these disciples became living when Jesus breathed on them. When we were one to Christ, the breath of God filled us inside in the spirit, and our spirits became alive. I need us to understand this because there's something to this. But now in Acts chapter 1, he tells them, now you need to be baptized in the Holy Ghost. So there's another level. Now, all this sounds real preliminary. We, we grew up in this. We should know this. But some of us don't. And many of us don't live like it, like we should. So we're, we're doing some fundamental training tonight, and then we're going to get a little deep or a little deeper. You know, when you're training for something, the thing you do the most are the fundamentals. I play my scales on the piano every time, every time I play a piano. Same scales I learned when I was 12 years old, I play them to this day. They don't change. Same scales. When I teach piano, I make my students play their scales. You're going to play all 12 major scales. And then you're going to play all 12 minor scales. You're going to do ascending and descending at various tempos. Because for the rest of your life, I don't care how long you've been doing this, I've been doing this quarter of a decade, quarter of a decade, quarter of a century. I'm young, I ain't that young. I've been doing this for a quarter of a century, and I'm still playing those same scales I learned when I was 12 years old. Because it's a fundamental. It keeps your skills sharp, it keeps your coordination good, your hand-eye coordination, it keeps your hands nice and fluid on the instrument. People want to learn these big, pretty chords and learn all these great songs. Every song is made of scales. Every song is made of those same, there's only 12 tones in music. That's it. Every song you've ever heard from the beginning of time to now is made up of 12 tones. There ain't no other ones. It's just those 12. Every song ever written is made up of 12 individual tones arranged in some order with a rhythm and a tempo. That's all it is. So you got to master those. So you can do them in your sleep. Same thing with anything. Whether it's working out, boxing, I like to box. You do the fundamentals every day. There ain't but so many ways you can punch a guy. But what determines whether you're going to win or lose is when it becomes reflex. And it becomes reflex by repetition. You do the same move every day for hours on end until you do it without thinking. Because in a real fight, the whole fight is a matter of seconds. A professional boxing match takes about 20 minutes. They have breaks in between the rounds. But if you, if you were to go nonstop, you could probably go nonstop for about 10 minutes before your cardio would just give out. Fights are fast. Well, spiritual warfare is fast. And it's built on your understanding of the fundamentals. And one of the things that happens to us, myself included, is we want to get new revelation. We want to get deep revelation. We want to get these, these grand aha moments in the word. But we, we abandon the fundamentals for it. You don't think like a person who God breathes into your nostrils. You think like a person who was a sinner saved by grace. I know you don't say it in this church because we know better. 
but you act like it because you allow too much. You know, we talk a lot about how powerful Adam was before he fell, as if that's a past tense issue. And we completely neglect the fact that we are right back in that same position. But because we have a history of sin, we defer to our sinful history, and we build our entire portfolio out of that. We're always fighting back from some failure, some weakness, some, part, some brokenness. You know, I'll take a rabbit trail here, but it is not a rabbit trail. It's actually, I'm going to put this over here because that's going to bother me. That was an expensive microphone. This idea of brokenness, I get it. It's a popular subject in the church today. Modern Christianity is big on brokenness, and I get it. We're trying not to be full of ourselves, so we wanna, and we want to be relatable. Mental illness and brokenness is a popular subject in our culture today. And one of the things that the modern church does is it latches on to what the kids are talking about. And then it tries to bring a spiritual point of view to what the kids are talking about. Almost every kid you meet today has some form of ADHD or some combination of letters. They're self-diagnosed with depression, anxiety. They got a pill for this, a pill for that. We are the most medicated and mentally ill generation you've ever seen. Most of it is bogus. But it's popular. And the church wants to be where the kids are. So we brought brokenness as a doctrine into the church. This idea that we're all broken people seeking God. And we are not. And that is a falsehood. It comes from a good place for some preachers. But it's such a popular subject, it's actually not true. Because Jesus didn't breathe brokenness into his disciples. And he didn't breathe brokenness into you. You are 100% God on the inside. There's nothing broken about you. Now, if you're going to give a testimony, your testimony should always be this. I was broken, but I'm not. Here's why I'm not. And here's why you don't have to be. Stop telling people you're broken. Because if you're still broken, you're not saved. You can't be broken and saved. See, this generation doesn't say sinner saved by grace. The old generation said sinner saved by grace. And everybody knew that meant, oh, he's so humble. This generation says broken. Work in progress. You are not a work in progress. You are a finished work. Jesus didn't say it is started. He said it is finished. You are not a work in progress. The problem is you confess you're a work in progress. So you never get done. You say, well, yeah, but I still struggle with this. Stop struggling with it. Not that complicated. You ever tried to stop struggling with it? I don't mean in your strength. I don't mean I'm going to give this up and I'm not going to do it. I don't mean that. I mean, by the grace of the Holy Spirit living in me, this no longer has control over me. I'm done. You ever tried that? That's why you fail. You don't try it. You do it. Just do it. Some of us have made issues that we struggle with in our childhood and things like that. I'm not saying you can't lead someone along the path of how you got yours. But stop identifying with it as a way to lead people. Because all you're doing is telling them if they never get free of it, it's okay. 
But now you're deceiving them into thinking they can't be free of it or they don't have to be. See, you only go as far as your standard. And brokenness is pervasive because it sounds humble. But it doesn't represent Christ. See, we are what Christ is. The Bible says, as he is, so are we. It doesn't say as he is, so we can be if we try hard enough. But if we don't make it, he still loves us. That's not what it says. It says, as he is, so are we. The revelation of who we are in him is a process. But the speed of that process and the success of that process is determined by us, not by him. See, you buy a brand new car with one mile on it, just a test mile. Well, you can test miles about six or seven miles, right? You buy a brand new car, nobody's ever driven it. And it's pristine. The fresh factory oil, brand new tank of gas in it. Nobody sat on the seat. Brand new car. And you get in the car, and you, you get to your driveway, and you don't drive it. You just look at it. People say, man, how come you don't drive that car? Oh, well, you know, that car is, uh, it needs a little work. Oh, what's wrong with it? Well, you know, all, my last car needed some work, and this car looks like my last car, so I, it's, it's got to have some work because all cars need a little work. So you don't drive it. Well, after a while, it just sits there. Now, a brand new car that sits idle for too long, it's going to start to rot. The tire, the rubber on the tire starts to dry rot. You got a lot of rubber hoses and gaskets in your motor. They start to dry rot because the oil doesn't circulate around them, so they don't stay lubricated, so they dry up. And then one day you go to start it, and your brand new car pops a gasket or blows a, a coolant line. I had that happen. Car wasn't brand new, but it was in good shape. But it sat in the driveway for like nine months. I'm going to leave that alone. <laughs> it was my dad's fault. He can't say nothing now. It was my dad's fault. I begged him to give me that car. And he was like, nah, it's all right, I'm going to drive it. He didn't drive it. And it sat there for nine months. After nine months of me begging him, I said, Dad, can I have this car? He said, yeah, go ahead and take it. I had to put a new battery in. I had to put four tires on it. It popped both coolant lines, the upper and the lower. The upper I could change myself. The lower, you got to take it out and get to. So I had to get a mechanic to do the lower one. Then it overheated two times, put me down on my birthday. Had, my wife had made reservations for us on my birthday, way out in Hampton. And I'm coming home from work, and she blow up on the side of the road, and it's raining. Like it's raining tonight, it's raining. Can't run the engine, so I got no defrosters. I can't see. I'm sitting on the side of the road, smoke coming out the car. It's hot, because it's June. My birthday is in June. It's hot, it's muggy, and I'm just looking at Nine months ago, this car was perfect, but it just sat in the yard and dried up. I was so mad. Free car. I'd have that car right now. Nothing like a free car. I don't care what nobody says. I don't care what it is. It ain't nothing like a free car. I ended up putting more money in that thing. I could have just bought it by the time I was done repairing it. But it, it, it gave me a good year. It gave me the last year of its life. <laughs> but it was a good car that sat. Well, you're a good spirit who's been sitting because you believe you're a work in progress. So some stuff you ain't trying to do because you don't think you're spiritually qualified to do it. What else do you need to do? Jesus gave his disciples 10 days to get spiritually qualified to take over the world. That's it. 
The rest they figure out as they go. He said, all you need is this. He breathed on them. They became alive. Then they waited. I'm sorry, 50 days. Where I get 10 from? Then they waited until the Holy Spirit baptized them. So they were baptized in the Holy Ghost. Then they went to work. And they cast out devils, and they raised the dead, and they laid hands on the sick. Some of us have been works in progress for 20 years, and we ain't casting out no devils. Because we don't think we encounter devils the way they did back then. Most of us have never encountered a demon-possessed person, so we think. But that's because demon possession isn't as obvious as it used to be. The devil... Let me get one more scripture. Go to Ephesians chapter 6. I know we know this one, but we don't know it. Chapter, verse 10. Ephesians 6.10. Classic spiritual warfare scripture. Some good stuff in there, too. I told you Ephesians is my most written on. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wilds of the devil. Rabbit trail. Do you know what the whole armor of God is? I know Paul describes it, but do you actually know what it is? When I was reading this, the Lord said to me, he said, the armor of God is not armor that I give you. Or rather, it's not just armor that I give you. He said, it's my armor. I said, you got to explain that to me. He said, it's my armor. He said, when I go to war, this is my armor that I put on. It's your armor now because you go to war the way I went to war in the Old Testament. See, in the Old Testament, you couldn't go to war in the spirit realm. God had to fight your battles for you because you had no spiritual power. You were dead in your sin and you had no Holy Ghost. So God put on his armor and you don't believe me. You don't believe me. Go to Isaiah chapter 59. I'm going to show you. So y'all don't think I'm crazy. Well, you might think I'm crazy, but I don't care about that. Isaiah 59, verse 17. Ash, let's go back a little bit. Go to verse 1, Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue hath muttered perverseness, perversions. Sounds like today's culture. Blood on the hands of many. Perversion in the mouths of many. And it has separated us from God. None calleth for justice, nor any pleadeth for truth. There's a war against truth today, and no one's pleading for it. They trust in vanity, and they speak lies. They conceive mischief, and they bring forth iniquity. Go down to verse 9. Therefore is judgment far from us, neither does justice overtake us. We wait for light. But we behold obscurity or darkness for brightness, but we walk in darkness. We grope for the wall like the blind 
and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in the nighttime. In other words, when the sun is at its brightest, we're in the dark as if it were the night. We are in desolate places as dead men. We roar like bears and mourn like doves. We look for judgment, but there is none. Because of our transgressions, because our transgressions are multiplied before thee, and our sins testify against us. Verse 14, I'm skipping down a little bit because he's sort of reiterating the point. Verse 14, and judgment is turned away backward, and justice standeth afar off, for truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Yes, truth faileth, and he that departeth from evil maketh himself a victim. If you decide you're going to do good, you become a victim. That's what prey is. Make it himself prey. And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. And he saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. There was no one interceding for this nation, for this culture. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness, it sustained him. Verse 17, for he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head, and he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. Sound familiar? Verse 16 and 17 is talking about the Lord decides there's no intercessor. I will go to war. And he puts on the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, etc., etc. So when Paul in Ephesians 6 is referencing put on the whole armor of God, what does he start with? The breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, because that's God's armor. When God is preparing for spiritual warfare, this is what he puts on. But now it's our armor. It's not a defensive armor. It's an offensive armor. When a generation becomes corrupt, God or God's representatives put on their armor and go to war. And this is what Paul is saying in Ephesians 6. He's saying, hey, remember when God had to fight because there was no righteous people in the earth? And he had to protect the few people that would do good from being preyed upon like victims? And nobody would intercede for them. Remember when nobody stood up for him and God had to put the armor on and go to war himself? Now we are in his position. So here's the armor. Put it on. I thought that was pretty good myself. I don't know about y'all. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 is not a suggestion. It's a commandment from God that, hey, the world is upside down. It's not supposed to be, and it doesn't have to be. We have this idea that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and we are riding this thing out until the rapture. And that is wrong. The world is supposed to be getting closer to heaven. It's supposed to be getting less comfortable for the sinner. The father told Jesus, sit here at my right hand until your enemies are made your footstool. So if the world is supposed to get worse, 
how are his enemies supposed to be made his footstool? That doesn't make sense. What is Jesus waiting on? He's waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. Jesus told his disciples, the power is mine. All power has been given unto me. That's your assignment. Go out there and use this power I've given you to turn this world back to the way it's supposed to be. And as you hit certain milestones, I get closer and closer to you. Because you're preparing this planet for me. But what we've done, let the sinners run wild, and we shake our head at them in our righteous towers until they come for our towers. Then we panic because we're not spiritually developed in warfare because we haven't done it in a long time. We built a whole nation on Christianity and then slowly gave it to the devil. We built an entire culture on Christian values and then gave it piece by piece to the devil. Why do you think there was such an attack on finances? Because money is an essential tool of social influence. And if the bulk of the money was in the hands of the church, do you think TV will look the way it looks? Do you think Hollywood will look the way it looks? Do you think the music business? Do you think corporate America, the pharmaceutical companies, your grocery stores, do you think they would function the way they function if most of the money was in our hands like it's supposed to be? But there was a long war. See, the devil had more experience running things than we did. So what he did, he knew, well, it ain't mine no more, but all of them don't believe it yet. Now, those first 120 in the upper room, they know. I might not be able to get to them, so I'm going to try to kill them as soon as possible before they plant these seeds in the culture. He failed at that. And when he realized he couldn't stop the church, he said, well, I can infect it. If I can't stop it, I'll infect it with religion. So there's all these religions in the ancient world. And they all have different practices. And so for a time, the church had to sort of move among them in order to keep from getting murdered. But as we moved among them, we began to absorb them. And little elements of their religion began to seep into ours. And little elements of their belief system began to seep into ours because we were moving among them to survive. And by the time we took over, we weren't quite the same. Now, you have pockets of us that still were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Thank God for that. But we became a minority. Until the, until the word Christian, you can slap it on anything. Oh, he's kind of Christian. You can't be kind of Christian. What's Christian like in values? Christianity is not a set of values. Christianity is an identity that you are born with. You are born Christian. You are born Christian. You are born like Christ. Because when he breathes on you, and you, and you, and you, and on me, we were born like him. Then we were baptized like him. How many days after Jesus' baptism in the Holy Spirit did he go into ministry? 40 days. He was baptized. Went to the world four days before the nights, fast and pray, was tempted of the devil, and then came out in power and went to work. 40 days. That's it. 
We got 50. Now, I'm not trying to, uh, for lack of a better term, die on this hill. So don't come for me. I'm not trying to establish a new doctrine. But I believe that when the church wakes up and we have new converts coming to this ministry, we give them 50 days. You got to go to work. We don't go to work soon enough. We come here to get patched up from all of our brokenness. And we become experts at coming to church. We got merit problems. We got marriage problems. We got money problems. We got health problems. And we just bring those problems every week. Every week, we just keep bringing those problems. And we stop. We haven't done spiritual warfare yet. See, you think spiritual warfare is fixing your problems. And it isn't. Your problems are already fixed. The reason why you don't know it is because you're not on the battlefield. Your battlefield is not the issues you brought into the church with you. That's not your battlefield. Your battlefield, Ephesians 6, I'm going to just go into my watch vibrates. Ephesians 6, verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rule of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And we took that as the natural order of things. And so now we expect them to be in high places. We expect them to be in high places until after the rapture. And the Bible doesn't say that. You say, well, if we're supposed to be, why do we wrestle against them? So, so wrestle doesn't mean we're on equal footing and one of us can win and one of us can lose. That's not what wrestle means. It's, a, it's, a, it's not the best word for this. We're not wrestling in the sense that we're equal. We're in the same weight class, and the principalities hit us and hurt us a little bit, and then we hit them and hurt them a little bit, and it's just this ongoing struggle against darkness and light. There is no struggle between darkness and light. I can prove it. Go into a dark room, turn the light on, find the darkness. You ever seen darkness and light fight each other? No. You've seen darkness with no light. You've seen light with no darkness. You've never seen them fight each other because they don't fight. Every time light turns on, darkness loses. So if there's darkness somewhere, that means you don't have enough light. You cannot say where this is a struggle that's supposed to be a push and a pull. No, it's just not enough light. Now Jesus is seated above all principality and power. And we are seated with him. But we've let our location determine the authority we think we have. Who knows what Air Force One is? What is Air Force One? It's the president's plane, right? The plane that the president of the United States uses to get around, right? We call that Air Force One. Well, that's true, but it's only partially true. Legally, technically, Air Force One is any plane the president is on. The name doesn't belong to his personal jet. The name is assigned to any aircraft the president is currently on. He can be in the back seat of a little single-engine Cessna. That plane is designated Air Force One as long as he's on it. The reason being is so that when that plane is in the air, all air traffic knows to respect that plane because it's carrying the president. He turns the plane into Air Force One when he's on it. 
And he can turn any plane into Air Force One just by getting on it because he's the president. And he's the president if he's in a basement in Oklahoma, just like he's the president if he's in the White House because the authority is in him. It's in the office of the president. It's not attached to his location. We are seated with Christ above principalities, far above principalities, the Bible says, in heavenly places. We're just located on earth. So our war is not against the heavenlies from the bottom up just because we're located here. We're actually, and this, this is going to mess with you, it should, if it hasn't, if it won't, it should. We're actually supposed to be issuing commands from the top to the principalities because they actually work for us. The, the offices that the demons and devils in the heavenlies occupy are our offices. Jesus took that power over those offices from the devil. The devil doesn't have that power anymore. Everything they're doing that they're getting away with, because we let them. Because we have Jesus' authority over those offices. We're not wrestling against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness from the ground. We're not fighting to break through those barriers. I know it's been taught that way. It's been taught that way because it looks like that when you're in a spiritual fight. It looks like we're breaking through a spiritual barrier. But in reality, we're issuing commands to disobedient servants. And it's our responsibility to bring them into compliance with our wishes because the authority to do it is ours. We don't have to convince the devil to do anything. Can I say this? I'm going to say it this way for the sake of giving you a good idea of what Jesus sees when he looks at the universe. When Jesus pulled up on the shore at Gadara, and the madman of Gadara is running around. They tried to chain him up. They couldn't hold him down. He's running around naked. He's crazy. He's, he's, he's cutting himself. He's doing all kinds of things, and everybody's afraid of him. And he shows up, and all these demons are in this madman. And they look at Jesus and they say, are you here to torment us? And Jesus cast them out of the man. And then they didn't go to the devil and say, what do we do? They asked Jesus, where do we go? They asked Jesus, the man of God, say the pigs. And that's where they went. Because they serve him. They don't serve the devil. They serve him. And now they serve us. But we don't treat them as servants. We treat them as their enemies. But their enemies who are operating in an office, we allow them to operate in because we don't understand that they're sitting in our chair. So we let them sit there because they were sitting there first. Or as long as we've been around. Actually, we were sitting there first in Adam. Adam gave them the chair. Jesus sent the chair back and told us, hey, that's your chair. But we see a devil sitting in that chair. We go, no, it ain't, because there's a devil sitting in it. And he said, well, there's a devil sitting in it. Make him get up. And we go, no, I can't do that. When there's a pig over there, they'll jump right in if you tell them to go. But we get scared because they've been sitting in the chair so long, 
all our life, we've known them to be sitting in the chair. So we think it's their position, but it's not. You can command the devil to do anything you want it to do, and you are required to do so. We got no problem telling angels what to do because they're going to do whatever the word of God says. We go around, some of you are commanding angels to do these when you should be commanding devils. And that's a little controversial, but it's true because that's what Jesus did. When Jesus stood in front of that legion of devils and that man, he didn't command out a single angel to do nothing. He, told, he spoke to the devils and they did exactly what he said. Jesus said, these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name, they shall cast out devils. He did not say, in my name, they shall command angels. And you can, but that's not what he told you to do. Because the angels are not your problem. It's a devil in your way. That you're not casting out because you think he's where he's supposed to be. And he's not. There's a pig he belongs in. For all you bacon lovers. But we're afraid of devils. We don't, we don't think we are, but we are. Because you think that Hollywood belongs to the devil. You know why Hollywood belongs to the devil? Because we gave it to him. We let him have it. We let him have the school system. We let him have the government. We let him have our culture. He don't have no right to it, and he knows it. That's why he won't fight you on it. He'll make some noise. But if you really stand in the authority of Christ, you can have whatever you say. Jesus understood that. They didn't mess with Jesus. And he was one man. We are many. But we act like we are none. And God is not pleased because we're not wearing our armor. I didn't get to the, to the spirit part. I only got to the, to the preliminaries. These are the fundamentals. Let me see how much time I got. Oh, look at that. Not a time. These are fundamentals. We don't think of ourselves in the right sense. So we struggle with things we should not struggle with. We struggle with identity. We struggle against culture because it's not our culture. But it's supposed to be. We're ashamed of who we are. And we let them shame us into being who we are because we don't Identify with is such a weak term now, because everything identifies with something. We have not yet fully embraced who we are. You are not broken. You are not a work in progress. You are a finished work, walking in the same power and authority that Christ walked in and that Adam walked in before him. And you are responsible. You're not just able to. You are responsible for taking over this world for the kingdom. That's not just getting people saved. That doesn't just mean getting people saved. That's part of it, but that's not all there is to it. Because you'll get lost just trying to get everybody saved. And then people that don't want to get saved, you leave, you leave them alone. If you don't want to serve my God, you don't get to be on my television. When is that going to be our thought? If you don't want to serve my God, you don't get to teach my kids in the school. If you don't want to serve my God, you don't get to open a business in my town. They say it to us. They tell us, if you don't accept this gender, that gender, those genders, you can't run this business. They tell us, if you don't accept this type of marriage or that type of marriage or this belief, if you're not willing to murder children in the womb, then you can't do business in our town. Now, how can they tell us they're to worship their God 
we can't tell them to worship ours. We've gotten weak, ladies and gentlemen, but our strength returns. Amen?